500 years ago he washed ashore the sole survivor of a shipwreck and upon the skull of the man who killed his dad he said i'm mad i must eradicate piracy injustice and cruelty and all my sons will follow me so evil doers will believe that this man cannot die the the ghost who walks enemies beware the phantom's always there but you won't find the phantom he finds you G'day everyone, and for those who have come in late, you're listening to Expand the Phantom Podcast. My name is Jermaine, and tonight I am joined by Dan. How are you, buddy? Yeah, good, mate, good, mate. Um, Looking forward to tonight's chat, and uh, really good to be back in the podcast chair again. Yeah, are you ready to go back to school? Well, I know it's a common daily thing for you, but, you know, on the other side of it, you're going to be the student (laughs) and this time? Yeah, it's it's interesting. The last couple of podcasts we've been talking to, um, you know, uh, the people associated with the Phantom Club in particular, um, between Hendo and Olga and Wally Lewis, and um, hearing a bit about being a Phantom fan in the 80s and 90s, I feel like we're going to um, go back even further in time tonight. And uh, really looking, I'm a, I'm a history uh, buff, I'm a history major and a history teacher by trade. Um, mostly teaching English at the moment, but I love my history, so I'm really looking forward to learning a lot of history tonight. That's good. And as all our listeners will be aware, seeing we have a special guest, that means we have booted Steve off. <laughs> um, no, just jokes, well, Steve. <laughs> he's probably got more in common with tonight's guests than, than we do, given that he's off. The reason that he's not here is because he's busy writing his, his masters. <laughs> yes. So as we have kind of hinted, uh, we have a very special guest tonight. Um, this has been a podcast probably about a year or two in the making. Um, and for those who do not know who we're talking about, we are talking about Kevin Patrick. Um, how are you, Kevin? I'm very well, thanks, guys. How are you? Pretty good, mate. Um, we've had to, you know, you've been um, you've been on our wish list for a while, and you've always said, let's just put it off for a little bit longer, put it off for a little while longer. So um, it, it's good to finally get you on the podcast. Uh, I'm delighted to to be invited into the podcast. I know this has been a, an epic in the making, so let's hope we don't disappoint your listeners today. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that will not happen. So um, as always, whenever we have uh, a guest, we always ask you, we always ask them to start off with a little bit about yourself. Uh, you know. A little bit of your background, what you do, uh, how you became a Phantom fan, uh, how you were introduced, do you still read Phantom comics and, and stuff from there, and then we kind of go on from there. So, um, Kevin, would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself? Absolutely. Look, this will take up the next hour, so, you know, sit back and enjoy, guys. <laughs> That's okay. Perfect. Our podcast um... listeners are used to that. <laughs> seriously, a bit about myself. Um, my name is Kevin Patrick. I'm currently teaching media and communication studies at Fordham University in New York. Uh, I've, I've My background has been at various times uh, involved in communications policy research. Uh, I've worked as a freelance magazine journalist for nearly 15 years. Uh, I've written um, 
two children's books, one called Prehistoric Australia and one called Airborne Australia. Um, I've also been a you know, long-time bookseller as well. So uh, looking back over my working life, um, there's always been this common thread of, of words, of writing, of literature. So even though you know, my resume might look a little, well, crazy, a little bit of a patchwork quilt, I think that's been the kind of unifying theme. Um, and uh, I think that that sort of reached its newest phase in terms of where I am now in my life, you know, when I decided to go back and do um, postgraduate study uh, back at Monash University around 2008-2009. I did an honours year. Um, I wrote a, a minor thesis about um, Australian comics and the sort of cultural anxieties surrounding comic books in Australia in the 1940s and 1950s. And um, after that, my supervisor said to me, well, Kevin, how do you feel about doing a PhD thesis? And I said, well, Dr. Murray, I think it's a very splendid idea. Um, what about a thesis on The Phantom? And she said, okay, that's fine. I've never read The Phantom, but proceed from there. And the, uh, so that was about, well, what? When did I start? That would have been about 2010. So, you know, that, that's sort of where... You know, that sort of led me to the path I'm on now. But in terms of The Phantom himself, my first exposure to The Phantom very much predates that. It would have probably been about, I probably would have been about, I don't know, 10 years old. Um, and I think it probably would have been, you know, my first Phantom comic would have been something like 631 or 134, an old fru edition. Um, with the blue background and the, and the orange masthead. Um, and I think the story was the Diamond Hunters, the classic Lee Fork and Ray Morse story from 1937. And uh, I sort of, you know, got hooked uh, well and truly. And, and even though my interest in the Phantom, you know, has sort of fluctuated over the years, you know, depending on my interest in comics generally, um, you know, that's, it, it's still a character. It's still a series I always come back to. Um, so yeah, that, that that's where I, my first entree into the Phantom, and you know, was a pretty dedicated and regular reader for at least you know ten years or so. But then picked up the thread again when I uh, started doing my PhD thesis on the Phantom at Monash University, and that opened up a whole new world about the Phantom and his international profile and popularity. Uh, so yeah, that's a little bit about me. So, do you still read the Phantom now? Well, look, it's funny, you know, um, uh, reflecting on what's been happening at through publications back in Australia, I really picked the worst possible time to <laughs> move to the US because all this amazing stuff has been going on back at um, through headquarters. It's, it, you know, I always kept, um, you know, over, over the years, I've, I've had a few opportunities to talk to Jim Shepard, um, you know, when I was writing a column for Collector Mania magazine about Australian comics, or you know, even in connection with my PhD thesis. And, you know, I'd always walk away from these chats with Jim, you know, asking about through and what their future plans are. And I always kept a little bit of a mini shopping list, you know, about, like, if I was the publisher of Fru and The Phantom, what would I do with The Phantom? I always had this kind of wish list of things, you know, I'd, I'd be going, well, look, I'd, I'd try and translate, you know, 
some of the really early you know Swedish phantom stories from the 1960s you know I'd try and reprint some of the um you know Charlton stories from the 60s particularly the the Jim Apero stories as well and I'd be doing this and I'd be doing that and lo and behold you know Glenn Ford and Renee White take over the reins at Fruit and they're pretty much checking off everything that was on my shopping list there so I just thought I really had someone's gone and done that because um you know just looking from afar what they're doing um it's really great i think it's i i i really do miss my fortnightly fix of the phantom as it is um in in a moment of weakness my credit card took a bit of a beating i actually um ordered online some of these um paperback reissues of old Lee Fork Ray Moore strips that were done in the late 90s uh, by the Pacific Comics Club yes, here in the yes. States. So I got I got three of those. I got one with the seahorse, which is probably my second favourite um, phantom story. Uh, one with the diamond hunters, of course, and one with little Toma, Toma which is, um, I think, one of the you know, sweetest and most poignant um, phantom stories from that era. Hmm. So how long ago did you move over to New York, Kevin? Uh, I've been here since, what, July 2016. Yes, yeah. Uh, my wife and I um, relocated here. Um, we we've, uh, we actually got through the uh, Visa Diversity Program, which I believe President Trump is wanting to shut down now. So um, we made it just in time. <laughs> <laughs> yes, just in time for that. But as you say, also um, just in time to miss... To miss the renaissance of uh, of Fru Phantom back over in Australia, so um, yes, oh, it's, it's, it's been heartbreaking actually. You know, I just think, oh, <laughs> there's no way I can sort of get any copies over here. I mean, unless I shell out for a subscription. But um, you know, having said that, it's it's been really delightful. Um, um, Glenn Ford approached me and said, look, would you like to write some? you know, small essays for the uh, Giant Size Phantom series, which was another thing on my wish list. I thought, gee, it'd be really good if they could reprint those. What a great collection of, of, of old Australian comics. And uh, so when he asked me to do that piece for um, Giant Size Phantom 2 on the Phantom Ranger, I, I just jumped at the chance. I thought, great, I'd love to. So I, I still have my, my toe in the water insofar as Fru is concerned, which is nice. Well, that's the least he could have done after stealing all your uh, ideas. <laughs> and look, I didn't even charge him a finder's fee, so I think I'm being very generous here. <laughs> so I suppose we probably should mention, and, and that's why um, we're talking to Kevin, it's not just um, the the historical articles that you're now putting in the giant size, and I'd like to explore that a little bit more after the, the really excellent um, expose on... Phantom Ranger in giant size number two, which is which has just come out as you've mentioned, but also the the book that your thesis has become, Ask, Unmasking the Phantom: America's First Superhero, um, which yeah. I guess is is the reason for the timing of of this interview because um, it's available now or or about to be available. I believe it is available now. I think the um, the official publishing date is fifteenth of November. At least it is according to my publisher, but. I know friends of mine here in the States who've actually bought copies online, so obviously there are copies, you know, sort of filtering out there, which is really nice. But yes, so officially my book, The Phantom Unmasked, America's First Superhero from the University of Iowa Press, is uh, up for grabs now. (laughs) 
Very good. And people should definitely be going out to, to pick a copy of that up. Thank you. So, yeah, so really, I, I guess, you know, I think obviously one of the reasons why you know, we've sort of put off um, doing the podcast, we three, is because you know, it was always just a matter of just wait, hold your fire, the book's coming out. Um, and so, you know, this, this, uh, this book, you know, having just come out now, I'm, I'm so glad we, we finally got to do this at this time because it's very opportune, obviously. Mm. But, um, you know, just reflecting on the writing process behind this book, you know, talking about the sort of bad timing on my part, you know, leaving Australia to come to the US when all this amazing stuff's happening in fruit. Um, you know, there was also all these other developments that was happening uh, with the um, US comic strip, the one that's um, put out by King Feature Syndicate, you know, where you had um, uh, the death of several of the artists associated with the Sunday and the daily version. Um, you had all the things that were happening in Australia with Fru, and I think it was, you know, this time last year when I was um, putting the finishing touches to the second draft of the book, you know, I had to really hurriedly update the conclusion. I kept saying to my editors, look, have I got the space to actually talk about this stuff? Because, you know, there's always a time lag between when a book is written and when it actually hits the shelves in stores. But I just felt it was necessary to include references to these things to talk about the Phantom, not just as an historical artifact, but it's still very much a, an ongoing work that, that still, there are still things not just happening within the stories themselves, obviously, but all the, the things around it, like the people who write and illustrate the stories, the, the changes that are happening with publishers in, in Sweden and in Australia and, and all that sort of thing. So I was really peddling furiously as the deadline approached, saying, you know, just give me a couple more days. I just need to include all this new information here. So yeah, it, was, it, was, it was literally down to the wire. I just thought, okay, I wish things would just stop for, you know, just a moment so I could draw a line <laughs> under my manuscript. So has there has there been anything that you that that you haven't included that you wish you kind of did include? Ah, uh, look, I don't think so. Insofar, the focus of the book is about not only just the history of the Phantom comic strip and the history of the Phantom, the development of the Phantom as a character in his fictional world, but it's very much been looking at that at the at the foreign reception, the international. Mm reception of the character because I think that's always been the most intriguing thing about the Phantom. He's been a relatively you know sort of not if not unknown character he's definitely been a second or third tier comic strip hero yeah. in America um, but he's always had such a, 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 a you know a huge reception a huge following overseas and the reasons why I picked Sweden, Australia and India is because you've got three very culturally uh, politically and historically diverse countries, all of which, you know, seem to have a shared affinity or love of the Phantom. And I just think, well, that's a really intriguing phenomenon. Why is this so? I think that that's really the, the question that, you know, formed the basis of both my thesis and, and the book on which it's based now. And um, I think in terms of trying to pick apart the reasons why the Phantom has been so place to increase. 
Um, I don't think I've left anything out, but I'm, I'm just waiting for the email that comes from someone somewhere in some corner of the world who says, oh, but did you mention this? And, you know, I'll do a Homer Simpson's <laughs> moment. And, and they go, damn, I forgot to do that. But I think, you know, if, I mean, if you know what it's like, if you, you know, I think um, you know, anyone who's who's done any extended piece of writing, you know, particularly like I say, a master's thesis or an honours thesis or whatever, I mean, you're never always a hundred percent satisfied. But I'm as close to being a hundred percent satisfied as I can be with the end result of this book. I think I've covered everything, but like I say, <laughs> I'm just waiting to be told no, you didn't. <laughs> yeah. So um. Could we, like, go back a little bit and just, like, explore and maybe if you can just tell us about the whole process you did of the story? Because obviously there was the survey, um, maybe even focus a little bit more on why Australia, Sweden and India and maybe why not some other countries. Because I find that whole way, like, I've, I remember the survey when it first came out, I can't remember when you first did it, but the Phantom Forum was still around then. And... Everyone thought it was a great idea and was excited, and there was a, a lot of discussion about why countries like Norway wasn't included and stuff. So, um, if possible, could we explore that a little bit more? Yeah, sure. Look, I think the reasons why I picked Sweden, Australia, and India is because, on balance, I thought they were the countries that had the longest tradition of continuous publication of phantom comic books. Um, certainly Australia, you know, it's still mm. the world's longest running um, edition of the phantom comic. Um, Sweden is, I think, the second longest continuously running uh, edition of the phantom, or phantomen, which has been in print since 1950. Uh, India came later. India started publishing Phantom in comic magazines in 1964 as part of the Indrajal uh, comics anthology. But that kept in print up until the early 90s and they're still in print in those sort of small paperback digests um, from Eurobooks International. Yeah. So I, I thought these countries, um, aside from the intriguing, you know, sort of three-way connection, these these countries all having this um, shared affinity and, and, and love of the Phantom. Uh, it's also a recognition of their, their um, historic contribution to sustaining the Phantom franchise, for the want of a better word, um, the, the legacy of uh, comic book publishing in those countries. And they all have very different experiences of comic book publishing traditions as well and that's another thing I wanted to explore in my thesis and in the book as well. Now why didn't I include other countries like particularly say the other um, Scandinavian countries you know, such as Finland or, or um, Norway? And that's a very valid question. Um, I thought my, my reasoning in my head and, and I still stand by this is that Sweden has really been kind of almost the, the sort of Scandinavian epicenter of the Phantom. Uh, uh, you know, all the editions that have been published in neighbouring Scandinavian countries have either been joint ventures with or wholly owned um, operations by uh, its Swedish publishers, um, be it Semic Press or through Egmont, who's the current uh, Swedish publisher now. 
Now, that's not to dismiss um, <laughs> the popularity or the popularity of Phantom in, in you know, Norway and in Finland and, and you know, in even other you know, Eastern European countries like you know, Estonia or, or what have you. Um, but I think the historically significant aspect of that sort of Scandinavian tradition of comics publishing has always come out of Sweden. You know, that was the country that decided to uh, commission its own new original Phantomen stories, um, who actually made, you know, the, the really significant um, changes and innovations to the whole Phantom Chronicles, you know, by repositioning the sort of Phantom ancestors as a more Eurocentric historical figure. Uh, and you also see how the Swedes have made a direct contribution to the American comic strip. Uh, version of the of the Phantom, the original source. You know, you see things like um, the fictional African nation of Rhodia. You know, is now incorporated into the American comic strip narrative. You had a number of the artists who previously worked on the Phantom comic strip actually first illustrated the Phantom for the Swedish uh, comic book edition. So you you kind of seen Sweden in particular. Um, sort of becoming this this sort of parallel centre um, to the United States in terms of producing new phantom stories. So I think historically, editorially and culturally, I felt it made sense to focus on Sweden, say at the exclusion of uh, other Scandinavian nations or indeed other European nations that have... have published Phantom Editions in the past. So that, that was the reason why I chose Sweden in particular. What about um, uh, South America, for instance, that corner of the globe? Uh, Phantom has been very big in Brazil, for instance. Um, that never, uh, you know, where, where were you on that? It, it, I must admit, I am relatively ignorant of the Phantom's publishing history in uh, Latin America and South America. Um, I didn't get the sense that they perhaps, and, and, and correct me if I'm wrong here, and, I, and I'm, I'm willing to stand corrected on this, it might be the basis for a sequel. Who knows? <laughs> uh, but, um, I, I, I didn't get the sense that uh, the Phantom's publishing history in South America was as, say, how can I put this, as innovative or is historically significant as the Swedish contribution to the whole Phantom universe yeah, as such. I'll tend to agree uh, with that. That's not to deny... Yeah, it's not to deny the importance or the popularity of the Phantom in other countries. I mean, I could have just as easily uh, included, say, Italy you know, as the focus of my thesis and my book, or indeed, as you point out, any of the major you know, South American countries, particularly Brazil. Um but I think it's not just a reflection of the sort of cultural status of the Phantom in Australia, Sweden and India, but I also want to look at the importance the Phantom played in the actual de development, the evolution of comic book industries in those three countries. And, um, and I think it's to varying, to varying degrees, um, I would say the Phantom has had a significant role in the um, production and evolution of comic books 
in those three countries in terms of the level of imitation that it inspired. Um, you see that here in, in, in Australia, you, you can point to at least you know, half a dozen characters that have you know, copied various elements of the Phantom um, story or premise. Some published even by Fru, you know, Sir Falcon is obviously mm. you know, very much a, almost a carbon copy of the Phantom. Um, and I think uh, in India, uh, the popularity of the Phantom in Indrajal comics was very significant because it kind of proved the economic feasibility of comic book publishing in that country. It, it said, okay, yes, there is an untapped audience for not only English language comics, but for editions you know, in Hindi and Bengali and you know, any one of the you know, two dozen you know, scheduled languages that are recognised by the Indian constitution. So I think, you know, as a kind of, uh, the Phantom is a kind of instigator for yeah. comic book publishing in those three countries, I think can't be overlooked as well. Yeah, no, I definitely agree with that. Like, I think the fan has been published in, I think it's 10 or 11 languages in India. Um, yeah, that, that, yeah. I, I certainly, I, I'll be the first to admit, I, I'm not fully across the, the breadth of... Um, different linguistic editions of the Phantom published in India, simply because, you know, that material is not easily accessible. Yes. Um, even via eBay, you know, you, you look at some of the prices that are being asked for some of these old comics, and, you know, it, it's frankly, you know, a little bit expensive. <laughs> yes. Well, I'm missing, I'm missing one language from the, the Indian Indra Jal, and that's an uh, Arabic Arabic version, which um, that's the only one I'm missing of a of a language of all of those, and uh, I got a, I got a couple of collectors who also collect the Indian Indrajals, and they haven't got them either. So, so you're right about them being some of them being really hard to find. Look, I, I suspect that is the case because I, 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 I don't know this for sure, and I, I guess this was a problem of, of distance and of time because. Obviously, the Times of India group, which originally published Indrajal Comics, you know, they shut down their comic book operations around 1990. Um, the Illustrated Weekly of India, which used to carry um, the Phantom comic strip and had done so since 1952, they shut that down in the early 1990s, I think just a few years after they shut down the comic magazine business. So, um, you know, I was it was difficult to try and retrieve or gain access to, you know, the people behind um, behind the Indian production of that. And that's simply, you know, again, it's, it's a distance of time and even, you know, linguistic barriers as well. Mm. Um, so, you know, I have to sort of acknowledge there are limitations to the extent of my research there simply because, you know, I'm not fluent in you know, languages like Hindi and I did not have... Um, direct or intimate contact with people in India who were associated with the production of those comics, unlike Sweden and Australia, where I did. So, so Kevin, you said you chose those three countries because of their contributions in terms of, I guess, to the Phantom universe, and, and we're pretty aware of um, yeah. certainly how Sweden have done that. You've, you've outlined that really, really well. Mm. Um, I'm, I'm pretty ignorant of the Indian Phantom universe, I suppose. I've never collected Indrigals or... Or, or looked into those at all. Very so slippery did they... slope. Very slippery slope. 
<laughs> did, did they also create their own brand new Phantom Adventures, um, or was it just repeats of Leaf Orc stuff? I think it was mainly reprints of the Leaf Orc material. To my knowledge, I don't think they ever commissioned or produced uh, original material for the Indian market. I can, um, I can answer that for you. Um, Sorry? So, um... So with the Intragels, that was all base. It was pretty much uh, Barry stuff with a little bit of um, Wilson McCoy and rare, not many uh, Ray Moyles. Um, the Intragels, uh, they also did. I think it was about three or four Egmont stories or Semic stories. Um, Vultures of Vehicle was one of them, and there has been uh, some prose stories created by some local Indians um, but that's that's about it when it comes to um, like new stories oh actually no that's not correct they have um, and I'm, I'm actually in my phantom room tonight so this is um, a rarity but I can actually so they've they kind of released little Indian um, like giveaways like with uh, like bubblegum or um, like packets of chips and stuff like that and it had like the Phantom, Mandrake, Asterix, and a couple of other Indian characters, and they had like one or two pages of of the Phantom in those, which, which from memory are unique stories. But by the large, no, it was all ah. reference. Right. Okay. Well, thanks for telling me that now. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, get on the case here. Um, no, seriously. See, this is this, this is what I meant. You know, I'm, I'm probably going to get the email or the you know, the Facebook message saying, "Oh, you've missed that," and that's really intriguing. That you know, you've mentioned that they did commission these kind of promotional um, phantom stories, you know, as, as premium giveaways with um, food and confectionery. It's almost like a throwback to the early years of American comics, you know, in the mid 1930s when they did. Comic books as premium giveaways with you know, boxes of cereals or, or, or a purchase of shoes at a department store. So that, that's really interesting. I think you're right in terms of the composition of the Indrajal comics. It's mainly a mixture, principally of the Cy Barry drawn newspaper strips. Uh, I think initially began with a, a, a few of the uh, Wilson McCoy stories from the um, 50s and 60s. I have a feeling, and I could. I, Happy to be corrected on this. They might have even included some of the gold key um, uh, stories there as well. I think they were they were a lot more voracious in their appetite for phantom stories because it was going from a, I think a, a fortnightly to even a weekly publication. Mm. So they they had a constant demand for material there, whereas countries like Australia did not make a lot of use of the gold key material. Um, uh, I think they only experimented that, with that very briefly in the 60s uh, and reissued them in the in the 70s or early 80s. Um, and yet I know that uh, in Sweden, I, I, I remember visiting the um, old Cynic Press archives that they maintain. Oh, did you uh, go there? Yeah, I did. I, I only got to spend a little bit of time there and it's just like, where do I start? It's like, oh my god, I've just walked into the skull cave, <laughs> the minor treasure room. Oh, did they have to search you afterwards? <laughs> no, 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 no. Uh, 
I'm surprised they didn't actually. Now that you mention it, um, is it true that it's like it just through... a, is it? Because I've I've heard rumors that it's like like you go into like a big um, uh, like storage yard type of thing, and it's like a is that is that true? Well, my memory of it was it's an office. There's a dedicated sort of room which is on a kind of split level set above what is mainly a warehouse and distribution centre um, for a lot of the Egmont magazines that are being published. So that's where, you know, they might package up, you know, the giveaway toys with the magazines and that sort of thing. Um, but the actual archives themselves, it's from memory, I think it was on a split level office. You sort of walk in, it, it's, it's a bit cramped and, you know, you... you you really sort of need to know what you're looking for. And I just sort of started looking at folders of artwork that they actually use, like bromides of artwork that they use for particular issues. And mm. some of them would have the original cover illustrations or printer's proofs of the cover illustrations. I remember seeing um, black and white bromides or proofs of some of the Jim Apero uh, stories he'd done, would have been doing for, um, gold. was it Gold Key? Or uh, Charlton. Charlton. Yeah. Um, in, in an edition of Phantom Man, and I, I, I'm from memory, my memory could be playing tricks on me, it might have had still the original English text or it might have had overlaid, pasted over copy of um, Swedish text in, in the speech balloons. So I think um, some of... Uh, some some of the American comic book material did get used in Sweden, but by that time, by the time, you know, Gold Key and Charlton were doing new material in the American market, I think Semic uh, uh, Press, as it was then known, um, was already, you know, starting to get well underway mm. with their own new stories or redrawing some of the earlier uh, Ray Moore or um, Wilson McCoy stories and updating them to give them a sort of more modern 1960s look as well. Uh, they also did a lot of the Italian stuff as well. Um, like there's, That's true, yes. There's a, an Italian villain called Strangrol, I think it is. Um, and so, mm-hmm. so, um, seeing, so it was actually an Italian creation and seeing the Swedish readers were used to seeing that character, they carried on that villain in their earlier stories, so there was like that um, uh, flow-on effect, being it seamless from the um, Swedish to, well, no, the Italian to Swedish stories. See, this is what's really intriguing about the whole Phantom publishing enterprise. You have this sort of... Uh, continuous cross-traffic, mm. almost, between America, Sweden, Italy, Sweden, you know, Sweden to Australia. Um, that's, I think, really unusual, and I, I think you might be hard-pressed to find a comparable example where you have so many countries who, to varying degrees, actually make their own original contributions to an American-born comic strip character mm. such as the Phantom and continue to do so and certainly not to the significant level that the Swedes have done since the you know, 1960s and 1970s so I think that's one of the things that 
really struck me the more I researched this as I was you know, researching and uh, writing my thesis and then coming to you know, work on the book as a result is that it's, it's really quite a unique cultural and publishing phenomenon on so many levels. And um, that's why I was really thrilled you know, to be given the chance to put this into a book because it's such an amazing story in its own right. Um, and I, I think because The Phantom is so relatively unknown in many English-speaking countries, aside from Australia and New Zealand, obviously, um, that this will hopefully be a real revelation to many people who read the book. Mm. So, so as, um, and I'm not sure if you actually cover this in the book, and I don't want to give too much of the book, but do you have a theory sure. on why The Phantom is not popular in America? Look, I think that's one of the great paradoxes about The Phantom. I think it's one of the reasons for its you know, longevity outside of America um, is that because my, my theory is, and this is something I, I put down in the book and, and argued in my thesis as well, is that The Phantom is not identifiably American. Mm. I think that's what's allowed the character to travel as well as it has in so to so many different countries. The American superheroes, even Captain America, is an obvious They don't. And I think the Phantom, because he's literally the, the, a kind of figure that you can almost fill in for yourself, you know, he, he's a ghost. Um, and he, he inhabits this world which could be India, it could be Africa, it could be Asia, it could be a, a combination of all three. And I think that was the sort of accidental genius thing because he was able to construct his own sort of self-contained fictional universe, which only had a, a very kind of minimal connection with the real world as we know it, as, as we as readers know it. I think that allowed the Phantom to you know, travel, to translate as well as it has for mm. as long as it has because it's not identifiably American. It can be, you can sort of put the Phantom down in the country and it, it sort of makes sense almost wherever he exists outside mm. of America. Well, it's true that, um, was it in the Women's Weeklies, I, I think it was, that, um, that the editors actually made the Phantom Australian as well? Like, yes. Um, Instead of like Bombay, it was Port Darwin and. Uh, yeah, I think when. 36, I think it was just like a few months after the, the strip of the. Yeah, I think they deliberately, you know, altered things so Diana Palmer became a, a, a York, Sydney. I think there things that take place in Sydney Harbour. So yeah, they, they did make those cosmetic changes. Um, to uh, the fact was Australian. And also, don't forget, the the early stories maintain that the Phantom's, you know, jungle headquarters or, or throne was always going to be located somewhere off the um, Netherlands East Indies or what we call Indonesia now. So oh. there was that kind of geographic proximity to Australia, which perhaps reinforced the idea that, oh, this is an Australian comic strip. So, yeah, I think, again... It ties into that kind of, that, that sort of almost, how can I put it? Um, 
there's a lack there's a lack of, of sort of fixedness about the Phantom in his world, and 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 I think Lee Falk playing fast and loose about where this all took place. I think that really actually helped the Phantom become the international success that it did because it it could it it, it wasn't fixed to a specific place or time. It was really much a place of Falk's imagination um, and it had allowed us to project as readers about, you know, project our own sense of you know, affinity with the character as well. So you, you're saying that that helped internationally and, and it's hard to disagree with that, but it, but it was also to the detriment in America, do you think? And that's why um, the fandom is, is relatively... Um, or not unknown necessarily, but uh, certainly relatively unpopular, let's say, in America, the country of its birth. That's right. Um, I think I think it, it, he's kind of overlooked as a, as a sort of historical innovator of you know the superhero genre. Um, you know, he predates Superman by two years. Um, he has all the physical trappings of what we would identify comic book superhero in comics. Yeah. So, where, uh, what was the last thing? What was the last thing you heard, Jim, before you um, dropped down? Well, maybe even if you just start, um, you know, for your question about why Phantom isn't popular in America. Okay. Because all it right. was kind of dodgy then, so and it was a good question, so I want to kind of get one focus on that for our audience yeah um it's update it's getting okay. larger and larger so okay that's uh, <laughs> something you only want to hear in the context of a, a recording <laughs> well, that's, that's definitely going on the blue parole <laughs> okay um oh, i can't remember exactly oh, so <clears throat> um so I think, do you want to rephrase the question like, okay, why do you think the Phantom has not been as popular? Yeah. Yeah. In the United States, as it has been elsewhere. And yep. oh, oh, look, I, I, we're not hiding any secrets from the uh, podcast listeners. We've just had a technical difficulty and we've dropped out, and we're not sure exactly how, when when it was in and out. So we're going to ask the question again um about uh the phantom being popular in america and kevin you've, you've explained really well i think why why the phantom had international appeal and that ownership that could be taken from individual um yeah. countries around us around the world but um not so popular in america do you think those are connected the fact that it could be based overseas meant that it wasn't popular in america look i think that has something to do with it the fact that it wasn't explicitly American from the outset may have may have diminished its appeal. Though, uh, having said that, I mean I, I'm aware that Lee Falk, you know, uh, particularly in the 1960s, you know, when Cy Barry joined as as the principal illustrator, he made I think a much more deliberate effort to reorient the Phantom's origin story, like you know, going back to the, the Christopher Standish narrative. Mm. Um, and actually making it much more explicitly tied into American history, particularly, you know, Columbus's discovery of, of the Americas um, as well. Uh, so I think for whatever reason, uh, he might have been trying to uh, foreground a more distinctive and, and stronger 
uh, American connection with the Phantom narrative, you know, decades after he'd originally started the strip. Though, having said that, I mean, you know, how do you equally explain, say, the popularity of Tarzan in comic strips and in comic magazines as well? Um, there's a character who's had, you know, um, huge success in all forms of popular media, novels, um, films, animated cartoons, comic books, uh, newspaper comic strips, and yet, you know, it's ostensibly set in Africa. It, it's much more explicitly tied to an African setting than, say, even The Phantom was. And yet, you know, it had as long, nearly as long a, a, a sort of comic strip career um, mm. and comic magazine career as, as The Phantom did. Um, so I'm, I'm not sure. I, I think... It may have also had something to do, and I'm speculating here, it's something I, I haven't even really thought about until now, until we're talking about it, but perhaps even the quality of the artwork of, say, the Ray Moore stories and the Wilson McCoy stories were probably a little more simplistic, um, a little less unadorned as a lot of the really, you know, classic American adventure serial comic strips like, say, Terry and the Pirates uh, or Prince Valiant, you know, which were always celebrated for their exquisite draftsmanship, uh, their really great, you know, cinematic storytelling style. I think, particularly with Ray Moore, um, especially towards the end of his tenure on the strip, the, the, the artwork started to look very crude by comparison. I think it may have actually been in American eyes, a rather uh, unattractive, visually unattractive strip. For me, that's actually part of its appeal. I, like I was going it. to say the same thing. Exactly right. It, that, yeah. that simplistic nature of Moore and McCoy is certainly part of the appeal. Yeah, I, I think that's you know the reason why McCoy, in particular, um, was so popular in Sweden and India. Um, because they, that's when they started those comics with. They, they, they zoomed in on the on the McCoy material. I think for younger readers um, as well, and again, I'm speculating here, I think the sort of very basic, simplistic approach to their artwork, and it's deceptively simple, because if you try and actually copy them yourself, oh. um, it's actually very hard to capture mm. the essence of, of their work. Um, but I think superficially... It looks so simplistic that it can be easily understood by young readers. You know, it, it's a very direct visual representation of the action. And I think also it, it invites younger readers to imitate and copy it, especially if they have, you know, some sort of artistic inclination. You know, you know kids delight. They, they draw things, they copy things they see on TV or in magazines or whatever. And I think, um, you know, um, with The Phantom, I think on that very basic primary visual level, it was much more appealing to younger readers. Um, but in the American context, perhaps it was not seen as being such a, a beautifully rendered comic strip. And, and I can certainly understand why people might think that, but I think you know, we three are probably all in agreement here, and I think a lot of Phantom fans outside of America you know, probably respond to that sort of very direct bold style of the early strips and I think that's you know probably a key factor in its in its popularity. And and is part of it to do with American cultural identity I suppose which is very much uh, you know and I, and I'm I'm 
positing this from an, an Australian perspective and, and outside of um, America, but it's it's very much a USA, 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 um, very nationalistic, very patriotic. Uh, you know, the World Series is only American teams and and all this sort of thing. So if it's if it's not explicitly American and constantly always set in an American city and and um, or, or Metropolis or Gotham, which were American cities. Um, then perhaps it's not as interesting to American readers. Look, I, I think there's a lot of merit in what you're saying. I, I think, yes, it probably is a reflection uh, on a kind of parochial outlook that you know, American media audiences might have because when you think about you know our experiences as Australians, as indeed the experiences of any people in countries outside of America – we are probably more exposed to outside media influences, be it from, say, take, for instance, Australia. You know, we'll have access to um, media from the United States. You know, you'll see New Zealand TV programs screening. Mm. Canada. You know, yeah, Canada as well. Um, so I think countries outside of America, especially countries that have the shared English language, are going to be exposed to a much greater... Um, pool of media content, you know, be it from music, uh, motion pictures, novels, comics, whatever, from other countries than, say, Americans are. Because if you if you looked at it as a kind of flow of traffic, you know, countries like Australia will receive media from all different sorts of sources here, whereas if you look at mainstream media in America, there's actually, it, it's quite the reverse. There's very little foreign media content that's going to come in and be disseminated as widely as it might be in countries like Australia. Um, So, no, I think you're right. I think it is a reflection of its sort of uh, insular parochial outlook, which, you know, might suggest that, yeah, if, if it doesn't have an explicitly American setting, it's not necessarily going to resonate with American audiences. So do you think... On the back of that, there's a bit to do with the fact that The Phantom wasn't in a regular comic book series where it was just in the paper, where Mm. Batman, Superman, and all the Marvel characters and stuff like that had fairly regular ongoing comic comic books, where if you look at The Phantom in America, it had the Ace Comics and the King Comics in the 30s and 40s, um, and then there was the Charlton and Kings in the 60s, 70s, and there was, you know, really only the Harvey Hits and the Harveys in the 50s, which were, you know, so it was very short and far in between. Yes, absolutely. I think the fact that it did not have that constant exposure through comic magazines, either as part of an anthology title like Ace Comics in the 30s and 40s, or in its own self-titled comic magazine. I mean, bear in mind that the Phantom comic strip debuts in 1936, but it's not until 1962, nearly 30 years later, that it actually gets its own self-titled comic magazine through Gold Key Comics. Um, You know, there's a huge gap there. It doesn't have that exposure in allied print media, such as comic magazines, and also the fact that its chief exposure is through newspapers, I think, had a detrimental effect on it as well, because in the 1960s and 1970s, you see a real decline 
in both the number of and perhaps a decline in audience interest in adventure serial comic strips. Adventure serial comic strips are getting smaller, physically getting smaller, because newspapers aren't allocating as much space to them. Um, a lot of the adventure comic strips that came of age in the 1930s and 40s were being cancelled by the late 60s and early 70s because their original creators had retired or died in some instances. Um, so the fact that the Phantom in America was, you know, constantly, its fortunes were constantly tied to a diminishing newspaper market, I think didn't help it as well. And add to that the fact that it did not have a regular, on, it has not had a regular ongoing comic book presence in America, probably since um, the end of Carlton Run in the 1970s. I mean, other publishers have sort of stepped in and done mini-series and one-shots, you know, be it DC, um, Marvel, Moonstone Graphics, you, you know, so you've got large and small companies who've all taken nibbles at the sort of Phantom franchise. They've never been able to do it in a sustainable or commercially or uh, creatively successful way for whatever reason. So, you know, I think you're right. The fact that it it is low on the radar here in the States doesn't help it at all. Hmm. An interesting fact regarding that, what you were just talking about, is Moonstone is currently the number one publisher who's actually published the most comics inside of um, inside of America by pure numbers because, of course, you've got Gold Key, King and Charlton are three separate companies. Yeah. Right, that's interesting, yeah. But I think it's also, uh, I mean, Moonstone's operating in a very different comic magazine market to what, say, uh, to the one that Gold Key and Charlton were operating in. You know, we're mm. talking about when comics were a mass meeting, you could go into a drugstore and there'd be a spinner rack of comics. You know, you, you'd go to a supermarket and you'd see comics there. Whereas Moonstone operates in an environment now where you actually have to make a, 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 a separate trip to a dedicated retail outlet that only just sells comic magazines. Mm. Um, so it may be, it may, in terms of volume, may be you know, a really prolific publisher, but I would argue that its reach to the public and its visibility to the public is much smaller, um, given that comic shops themselves are nowhere near as ubiquitous as they once were in the sort of 80s and early 90s, and also the fact that they cater to what is, you know, we have to say is a fairly niche audience, yeah. whereas Charlton and Balkey were very much interested in a mass audience in a general reading public. Mm, they had other titles. They had other popular titles as well, like uh, Tarzan, Torok, um, and some others as well. Yes. Mm. And Flash Gordon, yeah. and you know they—they exactly, exactly right. Yeah. So I think perhaps the Phantom's public profile, certainly in comic books, has also been tied to the the fluctuating fortunes of America's comic book industry, which has gone from being, you know, a, a mass medium designed to attract a general readership to a much more specialised niche audience. Um, and the consequence of that is it, it does not have the kind of profile that, you know, other major superhero characters do in America. Yeah, no, I agree with that. It's rather interesting. Um, yeah, I, I love talking about stuff like that. Oh, no, it's, it's 
It's the sort of thing that, you know, I was exploring in the thesis and which I do touch upon in the book as well, because I think you need to consider these issues when you're asking yourself, okay, why is this character so much more popular in these countries mm. but not in its homeland? And I think, you know, when you look at the economics of publishing industries in these three countries and the United States, you know, I think some of that reason, you know, some of the reasons can be sheeted down to that very that very issue. Mm. Well, you and and what's even interesting is, like, if you if you on I don't know if you've seen, but on the pod, on the website we've done a bit of a uh, a bit of a mini series looking at comic books that have been published uh, before the forties and stuff like that. And at the moment, the earliest one that we've found is actually a, a Phantom comic from Yugoslavia. Yes, I know. Look, oh, I was. I was so angry that you made that discovery <laughs> because I thought, oh, damn, the book's gone to press. I can't update it. <laughs> <laughs> so, so in the book, which one of you, which one of you identified as the first, the Italian still? I probably would have done the Italian one. Um, but I, I think, you know, you know, this is just it. And also I just thought, well, do I go back and try and unpack the manuscript? And then I thought, well, I only have just that sort of fragments of information that you've been publishing on Chronicle Chamber, which has been fascinating. I think it's, you know, this is this is really good historical, you know, insight and discovery. So welcome, you guys. Um, but yeah, I just thought, okay, it's it, it's it's personally interesting to me, but is it actually going to further the sort of arguments I'm putting forward in the book and yeah. on balance I probably no, it isn't. So I'll just put that to one side. Yeah. <laughs> so, so when everyone reads that, and you don't need to worry about sending Cameron an email about that because he's already aware. <laughs> <laughs> so just, just take your fingers off the keyboards, there, people. We're, we're across it now. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, no. One of the reasons that I am looking forward to reading the book so much is. I'm not sure if you're aware, but one of the things that I focus on with my collection with, uh, with is actually comics from around the world. Um, so it's it's um it's yeah it's with hearing you talking about the history in all these different countries and that it's something that's you know that 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 perks my you know uh, interest and stuff like that as well. So yeah, it's um no really looking forward to it. Mm. And, and we should say at this stage that neither Jermaine or I have read the read the book, <laughs> which is, no. which may seem to be a bit interesting. But we have um, read the 50 pages or so that have been released on the QBD website. Um, and and what I found fascinating about that, it was a real lesson for me. Just those first chapter and a half, I think, was in the first 50 pages, was about how syndication works and and what a syndicate means. Because I've been talking about KFS and King Features Syndicate. You know, for 20 years, but I'd never really understood how a syndicate worked, and that was a really fascinating world to um, to read about and understand exactly how that that had all come about. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your uh, the way that that research unfolded for you, Kevin? Look, it, I thought you know, in order to understand the phantom, not just as a cultural and artistic phenomenon, you've got to understand the means by which the, the comic strip is disseminated. Um, and 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 I think it was Maurice Horn, um, who's a, a French-born comics historian, um, and has 
it's a quote I cite him in the book. If you want to understand the comic strip, you have to understand its means of distribution. You have to understand how syndication works. And I think his claim is absolutely true because, um, you know, looking at how syndicates operate in terms of they create content which they sell to as many clients as they possibly can, or mm. newspaper clients, or magazine clients. Um, with King Feature Syndicate, you know, they were expanding, only starting to expand really in the late 1920s and early 1930s. They, interestingly, did not set up their own um, international offices, but often worked in partnership with local firms in countries like Australia, such as the Alpha Syndicate, um, to act as intermediaries between King Features and, and, the, and their intended Australian audience. And I think that's interesting because you've got companies like, you know, King Features, uh, sorry, like Yaffa Syndicate in Australia, um, and Bulls Press in Sweden. They're necessary because they have a better on the ground knowledge and better, uh, industry contacts with local media outlets, be it newspapers or magazines. And they can also have perhaps a better sense of what American material might translate into to those markets um, more readily than others. Um, mm. I think the, the feature syndication model is really interesting, and it's something I, I would actually like to explore further if, if the opportunity arises, um, because there really hasn't been a sort of sustained or, or, or all-encompassing history written about the feature syndicate business, and that when we're talking feature syndicates, they don't just distribute comic strips, they distribute crossword puzzles, they distribute mm. they distribute um, op-ed columns, all sorts of things, all the all the bits of the newspaper mosaic that you see when you open up the copy of your metropolitan newspaper, you know, look at where all that material is coming from, look at the copyright uh, in the seer information, see where all that material is coming from. It's pulled from all these different sources. Um, and I don't think, in, in the American context at least, I think there's only been one book that's been written about the history of feature syndicates, and that actually was published back in 1936. Wow. That's just Nothing's as though we're getting going. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So there's this whole sort of history that's unfurled since then. I mean, there's been sporadic academic articles written about um, the feature syndicate business in America, but no one's really touched on it, and that's something I'd really like to explore further if I have the you know, opportunity and means. So stay tuned. You never know what I might do next. <laughs> <laughs> and that might um, – I might just throw this in now. We've got – we do have a quote here from um, – somebody who has read the book, like uh, the entire book, um, an American um, Facebook uh, contributor who, for the most part, and, and uh, a um, big shout-out to Robert Hawley if you're listening, um, Robert's most of Robert's contributions, it's fair to say, to the Facebook groups are, oh, gee, I wish I had more access to Phantom stuff. Um, you guys in Australia have it so lucky because I see nothing. He's an American, obviously. Um and for once, the boot is on the other foot, and uh, he's been able to say, well, I've got this book, and, and you guys haven't got it yet, because I think it's released in America and, and not here yet. Um, but he does, he does raise an interesting point, and he, and he, he does emphasise that it's um, just his opinion. He's not trying to offend anybody, and, and this is just his experience of the book. Um, and he says, and I quote, 
I do love reading, and I'll be the first to admit I'm not the, f- the smartest of a lot of you. The book was not what I expected. Very dry, the first 145 pages. Not a lot of fun facts or storyline of The Phantom, but it did open up a lot of information about The Phantom in other countries. Um, it, it is an academic text that you've written, uh, isn't it, Kevin? It's, it's not so much, um, you know, it's not, it's, it's not a gripping, um, you know, detective story or um, fast-paced novel or anything like that. Uh, just to just to make it clear for people what they're getting into when they when they pick up the novel, uh, pick up the book. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the very fact that it's published by University of Iowa Press um, yes. tells you that. Obviously, it has to be written in a kind of accordance with their own editorial outlook. Um, when when the University of Iowa Press first approached me about doing this book, and it was actually midway through my PhD candidature, um, so we just read this article you published in a British uh, media studies journal about the Phantom. We'd be really interested in, in you know talking to you about doing this is a book once your thesis has been examined. Their interest, um, particularly because if you, if I'm looking at the back cover of the book now and the subject categories at the top, you know, often you'll have, you know, like, you know, you see on the back of non-fiction books, it'll be like, you know, American history or whatever. Um, and up here listed as their subject categories, fan studies and popular culture. Now they're interested, their initial interest in my project was the fact that I was undertaking that online survey of phantom readers in India, Australia and Sweden. Mm. They're very much interested in expanding their output of published works that deals with popular culture but with a particular focus on fan studies. That is, what do fans of popular media do? You know, how do they practice, for the want of a better word, how do they practice being a fan? You know, why are they particularly drawn to certain media franchises, how do they interact with, you know, the kind of corporate gatekeepers who have control, who have economic control over TV shows or comic strips. So that was, I think, a a big part of the appeal for the University of Iowa Press is that a lot of my research and my thesis was actually looking at why fans read The Phantom, how they were first exposed to The Phantom, um, and, you know, their participation in the kind of fandom, organised or or semi-organised fandom that's grown up around the character in these three countries. So it is an academic text. Um, I try not to be a dollars dishwater academic writer. It's explaining, yes. you know, how does the connection work? You know, it's also publishing history. I mean, I do, um, I do dip in and out of talking about um, particular phantom stories in so far that they, you know, make a significant contribution to the actual uh, ongoing, you know, phantom chronicle. Um, uh, but it is, it, it's not, it's not a fan sort of friendly book in the same way that, you know, say one of Liz Daniels, you know, popular histories of Marvel comics or DC comics might be. It's not going to be a glossy coffee book. Um, it, I, I'm hoping that it will, it will appeal to distinct audiences. It will hopefully appeal to diehard Phantom fans who are really keen to, you know, just 
actually have someone who's written a, a serious book about you know their favourite comic book character mm. hopefully walk away learning things and going, wow, I didn't know that. That's really interesting. Yeah. But I'm also hoping it will appeal to you know a, a scholarly audience as well who are really interested in comic books, comic fan culture, mm. and that sort of thing. And I, I think you know without you know wanting to sound too braggy here, <laughs> um, it, it is I think. Uh, an innovative book insofar that it, it is based on that online uh, survey. I think it's the largest of its kind that's yet been done in terms of you know, surveying comic book fans and certainly largest in terms of its international scope. I don't think that's mm. been done before. Yeah. So, so can we talk about the survey for can we talk about the survey for a little bit? That's um, uh, yeah. something that you, that you sent out and I know um, Joe uh, who was uh, doing all of the Chronicle Chamber stuff at the time. He certainly plugged the survey and um, encouraged uh, me, for instance, to, to contribute to it. And um, Jermaine, I assume you contributed as well. And, yeah, and yeah. Around the, around the world. Um, what was what was that like, reading all of the results as they came in? Look, it was really fascinating. Um, when uh, particularly the sort of open-ended, long-answer um, questions where people, you know, I invited people to say, you know, why did you like The Phantom or what was your favourite story and why? Um, I, I just got, I mean, this is the thing, you know, there was just so much interesting information that, you know, I had to exclude from both the thesis, which is much longer than the book and the book itself. Oh. Um, oh, wow. You know, I really, I really like the way that, you know, it was tied to people's personal experience you know uh, it's very much connected to memories of family of you know mm. relatives who read the phantom and, and the phantom being sort of passed down from one generation to the next just as in the comic strip it's mm. the mantle of the character is passed from father to son to eldest son um seen that being written in real life where, you know, a, a, a parent or an older sibling will pass on their love of the Phantom comic strip and comic books to a younger sibling or a younger relative. And just and just learning how people in these different countries were first exposed to the Phantom, I think was really interesting. You know, why did they stop reading the Phantom was another question I asked, you know. Some said, oh, you know, I got married, had kids, didn't have any money, or I went back to university and I was a poor student. Um, one of my favourites was um, uh, one person wrote in and said, um, I got my motorcycle licence and I discovered loose women. <laughs> <laughs> Which I thought was a pretty compelling argument to put aside your fashion comic book collection. <laughs> For me, the real joy was that kind of you know, anecdotal, very personal information. Some of it was really quite poignant. I mean, some of it, you know, I remember one respondent said um, they really liked those phantom stories which focused on, you know, the death of the father passing on the, the mantle of the phantom to their firstborn son because, you know, when they first discovered the phantom, their own father had died when they were, when they were a teenager. Mm. And so the story resonated with them. So for me, that, that's a kind of, you know, that's sort of emotionally rich mm. um, insight, which, you know, are beautiful. And, you know, I hope I've done justice to people who shared those memories with me um, and included them in my thesis and in the book. Um, I've tried to give 
good smattering of, you know, why people responded to the Phantom in the way that they did. And certainly that was one thing that really stood out to me just in, again, just that first 50 pages is the the amount of times you came back to the survey and included quotes from, you know, a female from Sweden or, you know, a male from Australia or whatever, the, the, the way you've attributed it and then, um, you know, provided the quotes and, and fit that into the biggest story. It really does add a, a personal touch and, you know, I mentioned the criticism or the the observation probably is better, the observation before that it's a very academic text, but the fact that you do have these personal contributions and stories smattered throughout uh, it really adds a, a, that personal touch, I think. Mm. Oh, look, I'm really I'm glad to hear you say that because that was certainly my intent. And I have to probably, you know, um, my hat to my original editor at University of Iowa Press, Catherine Cox. Um, she was the one who suggested that right, originally my plan had been to kind of quarantine that discussion of the fan survey to one section of the book. But she said, no, I think the book will actually be um, much stronger and will be better and will be improved vastly if you actually start to pepper these responses more liberally throughout the rest of the book so that you, know, you you do alternate between the sort of academic narrative and also juxtaposed with these kind of personal recollections and anecdotes as well. And I, I think, um, you know, she, she made a good call there and I'm glad that you've said that because it tells me that her instinct was right and that I was wrong. <laughs> <laughs> well, the way that you implemented her idea has come out really well. <laughs> oh, good. So did any did you so I'm assuming like we've we've talked about a lot of your thoughts on the Phantom uh, in history and stuff post writing the book. Did your views change much as you were writing the book? Like did you have preconceived ideas that were changed as you read the survey results, as you did your thesis and then as you did the book? Um Look, I, I, I don't recall having a sort of really like, wow, oh, that changes my thinking about everything moment. I, I think I went into this project with some of my own assumptions and, and they've sort of been forming in the back of my mind for, for some years. Just to give you some context, this book now originally had its genesis in a book proposal I pitched to an Australian publisher about 10 years ago actually before I'd even gone back to postgraduate study, um, I pitched an idea about doing a kind of pop culture history of the Phantom in Australia. And I said, you know, look, this character, it's, you know, it's part of the sort of pop culture landscape in Australia. It's, you know, it sells, you know, it was selling, what, 50,000, 60,000 copies, you know, every fortnight. I said, you know, this is a really you know, interesting phenomenon here. And I got a very politely worded rejection letter. <laughs> <laughs> from the publisher, more full then. Um, but I think looking back at my original proposal, I think a lot of the ideas that I talked about in the thesis and subsequently in the book based on the thesis, I was already starting to sort of form in my mind then. I had some assumptions, I had some hunches, um, and I think by and large, as I was doing research on, for my thesis, and especially as I was starting to get that sort of personal feedback from readers via the survey, 
Um, I think a lot of those assumptions were confirmed. You know, I might have perhaps, it might have been an issue of, you know, readjusting the emphasis on my focus or you know, it might have brought to light a sort of side bar issue I hadn't considered. But I sort of had this idea in my mind, well, I think this is why the Phantom works here in Australia. And I have a strong feeling it might work for these same reasons in countries like India and Sweden. Um, but I just sort of wanted to stay, sit back and just see, you know, if those assumptions were borne out both in my historical research and also in the feedback I got from um, readers. And I think for the most part, yes, it did. But, you know, the, the real surprise and the real joy comes in those kinds of um, personal anecdotal accounts, which sort of give a, a nice inflection into, you know, how people not just read The Phantom, but, you know, how they, they consumed media, um, you know, the role that families and friends play in, you know, forming our sort of tastes and preferences to the things we read and like, etc. So that, mm. for me, was the kind of, you know, the, the garnish on top. Mm. Awesome. Mm. No. So, yeah. it, it, it's, a, it's an amazing... Have, have you got a, a favourite chapter at all um, in, in the, the, the story? Like, um, we've, we've got... Um, when I say story, you've taken it, us from the very beginnings of the, the comic strip and then the syndication, um, which is what I've read so far. But then you look through um, the way that it, that unfolds and you, you're going to start taking us around the world. And um, the conclusion, you know, coming to the end of who owns the Phantom and the Eternal Champion, I'm really looking forward to seeing those sorts of chapters. Have you got a particular yeah. stage that is a favourite? Um, look... I don't know if there's one, I think the chapter, look, uh, it, it's like asking a parent to choose their favourite child, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> um, no, I love them all equally, but differently. Um, let me see. I, I, I think, you know, chapters like um, Becoming Phantom in, like how the, the, the Swedish Phantom, you know, came into being is particularly interesting to me. I liked... I liked writing the conclusion, not just because it was like, oh, phew, I'm at the end of this thing. <laughs> but also, it, it, it's kind of looking at, I, I think there's, there's a kind of nostalgic melancholy about the Phantom, which, you know, looking at where it's come from, where it is now, but also kind of, you know, juxtaposed with a sort of, optimism or the reasons why readers like the phantom i i, I do close the, the book with a particularly well, i thought it was a really telling quote and i just thought yeah this this kind of sort of distills i think you know the appeal of the phantom in that way so i did enjoy writing the conclusion because it gives you a chance to sort of reflect on the things you've learnt, you know, when you're, you you've written a book like this, but also, you know, just to sort of stand back and consider, you know, how do you distill, you know, your argument there? And I, I did like that. Um, I remember, you know, writing the thesis. Um, you know, there, there are many of the thesis chapters are in the book. Um, there was one chapter in my thesis which was totally doing my head in. You know, I just thought, you know, I'm going to throw this off under a bus if, if I can't. <laughs> um, and I, I'm trying to remember which chapter it was in in the book. I can't even recall now what that is. So I perhaps blocked that out of my mind as a traumatic experience. <laughs> just the same that we do 
with our kids, so. <laughs> exactly, precisely, well, precisely. Yeah, um, yeah so I, I don't know if I've got a, a really favourite chapter, but I think, yeah, probably the conclusion simply because it, it, it was the one moment I could sort of stand back and reflect myself on, you know, mm. the sort of, I hate to use the word journey, but I'm going to use it because it gets overused a lot. Yeah. But, you know, moment that, that starts from when, you know, I embarked on my PhD thesis back in 2009, 2010, to this point now, you know, when I was writing the final draft of the book, you know, um, around late the second half of 2016, um, you know, it was a moment to sort of reflect not just on what I've written, but, you know, what I've learned and the experience of writing the book. So I think for me personally, that, that probably has as much resonance as any other chapter in the book. Um, I should actually point out one of the things I did talk about at length in my thesis, which I couldn't talk about largely to, due to space constraints, was the adaptation of the Phantom in other media, like particularly motion pictures, um, uh, cinema serials, TV shows, cartoons and all that. I actually did devote quite a lot of attention to that in the thesis, um, but for reasons of space, I couldn't include it in the book. And I, I do touch on it very briefly when we talk about the fan responses to the survey, because I did ask participants in the survey, you know, did you ever, you know, watch um, any sort of phantom spin-off media products like TV shows, animated cartoons, promotions, pictures, etc. And you know, a good many had, um, but you know, for for a variety of reasons, I couldn't bring that into the book, which is a shame because, you know, it's actually quite interesting. But um, mm. I know that's after parcel it off into a, into a journal article somewhere down the track. Who knows? <laughs> or maybe you can write it for a blog post on uh, Chronicle Chamber. Indeed. Well <laughs> <laughs> paid. <laughs> so that, that offer's Kevin, always open for you, Kevin. <laughs> Kevin, can I ask about um, how King Features Syndicate have taken this whole thing? Because um, I imagine you would have tried to be in touch with them and let, and let them know that you're, you're writing a thesis and then a book about um, them in, in a lot of ways. And certainly, the, as I say, again, the, the, the first couple of chapters is very much about the history of King Features, and um, how was their response? Did they, were they happy for you to be writing it? Did they contribute much at all? Um, I know we've had a, a conversation. You've got a quote on the the, the website about um, they're, they're allowing you to use pictures and, and images of the Phantom in the book and, and how that didn't really transpire. How did it go, that interaction with them? Look, my interaction with them was limited, um, for a number of reasons. Um, I mean, trying to do this long distance when I was doing my thesis research um, was you know, always going to be problematic, even with email. Um, I have to say my experiences dealing with um, their counterparts in Sweden and in Australia were much more engaged um, the, the Swedish and, and Australian uh, people involved with the Phantom were much more responsive um, there. Now, I don't know why, you know, King Features might have been, you know, a little more distant from the project. Um, and I guess, you know, the real the real sort of interaction I had with them um, was 
was really in terms of discussing getting permission to use the images there, but you know, I was hoping because it's an academic book and the images would be used for scholarly research and criticism, mm. which you're allowed to do under even the Copyright Act here in America, um, that we might be able to, you know, get that use those images for free. But unfortunately, they wanted to attach a fee to that, which is their prerogative. They own the property, of course, um, but I simply just wasn't in a position to to pay that fee, and and just explain, you know, the images that I would have used in the book were already readily apparent everywhere else on the internet. So it's not like people would be missing out on exclusive artwork or illustrations that they can't see anywhere else. You know, a lot of that material I would have culled from my own collection. Um, from online sources, that sort of thing. So, um, so yeah, there, there was their involvement was very was minimal to the point of non-existent. In a way, was that frustrating? Look, it was it was kind of frustrating, but it could also be a blessing in disguise. But I think because you know they they weren't heavily involved in the project, you can afford to be a bit more. When I say critical, not to be negative, but you can be a bit more um, clear-sighted and objective in your mm. appraisal of you know, how organisations like King Feature Syndicate work, um, you know, how their business operates, that sort of thing. Um, sometimes it's hard to do that if you have, say, you know, a good positive or, or you know, um, beneficial interaction with, you know, say, a media stakeholder. You know, who's involved in the Phantom. Not that that was my experience with, you know, the people I dealt with in Sweden or in Australia. Um, they were enthusiastic about this from the get-go. The late Jim Shepard um, was really generous with his time and, and forthcoming with his knowledge, uh, particularly about the origins of through publications as well. Mm. Um, so I think, I think in one level, yes, it can be frustrating when you don't get the kind of cooperation you're hoping for, but it, it, it also gives you a benefit. It gives you the, the it gives you the opportunity to perhaps be a little more critical, and I mean that in a sort of objective, analytical sense rather than a negative majority sense. Hmm. Interesting. So, um, I got a couple. Well, I think we've got a couple more questions. Probably more about you as a fan. I hope you don't mind us um, changing tack a little bit and focusing on that for a little bit. Because we we want to we want to leave some surprises in the book for everyone who's going to go out and pick it up and read it. Um, so, um, in at the start you were talking about um, oh, I can't remember what what story it was, but you said do you remember what story it was, Dan? You said something about it was your second favourite romance story or your second favourite romance? Story? No, romance in the Vesta Pirates, I assume. Yeah. So we'll just um well so. So what are some of your... What's your other, first favourite? Yeah, what's your first favourite? <laughs> and then what are some of your favourite stories and artists and stuff like that? And... Okay. Um, let me see. I think for sentimental reasons, probably my first favourite would be The Diamond Hunters because that was the first Phantom story I read. Um, and that would have been followed very closely by the very heavily truncated version of The Sing Brotherhood, which I also read in the Fru edition. Now, I'm particularly drawn to those old Fru editions because, you know, they were so heavily edited and that each page was so densely packed with panels. 
um, but you really felt like you, you were just being immersed in this very complex, in-depth story. And also just the look of the Phantom comic book back then and the look of the, the artwork, particularly the old Ray Moore artwork, when he was at his absolute peak on the series, uh, I think just resonated with me um, just on a visual and visceral level. I, I just really, mm. I just really grew up on it. It's like, what is this strange world that's all worked in shows in grey tones? And it's, I'd never ever seen a comic book like that before. It was really my first exposure to a sort of what even then was already a quite old comic strip um, yeah. story. So I think for those reasons, those particular stories and those particular editions that I read in through at that time probably constitute my two favourites. Um, let me see. I'm just trying to think. Some of the early Cy Barry stories from the early 60s um, are just a knockout. I mean, they're just gorgeous-looking comic strips. He, he, he just, you know, he, he's starting to form his own, you know, visual identity there. He's really transforming the character. I can't remember any of the titles just off the top of my head. Um, I don't have a, a good recollection of those as other diehard fans would. But I, I really did like um, reading some of those stories. And often, a lot of those I would first discover when Jim Shepard was starting to reprint those, you know, in the late 80s and early 90s. He was doing those restored um, versions of them. It's just like, wow, this is amazing, you know? Um, so I really like those. I like going back to the Wilson McCoy period as well because I think Wilson McCoy is an artist you only really appreciate as you get older yes. in some yeah. ways. Yep, I agree with that. Definitely. Yep. I think we've. I think yep. at different stages, me and Dan have both commented on that. Um, mm. That I, th I think as a child, it was almost childish. That's how I saw it. But as you get older, especially with when you realise just the importance of him as a character, like we saw the Jungle Patrol, we saw Eden with him... Um, you know, like, I think um, Lily and so yeah, all those key elements are uh, when he moved to Africa. Um, all those key elements was was through Wilson McCoy's um, uh, reign. Yeah, and I think also Wilson McCoy. If you go back and look at the way he, he handles light and shade, particularly when he does scenes that are set in night, um, it's really yeah. masterful. It, yes. It's absolutely beautiful work. Mm. So, um, yeah. Uh, sorry, go on. Oh, no, I was just oh, I, I was, I was going to move a little bit in terms of um, where... And this, again, uh, Jermaine's mentioned the things we've talked about before, but um, we have an ongoing sort of dispute about <laughs> what what is the canon of um, the Phantom and what, what's real and what's not. Um, where, as someone who, who has obviously enjoyed and appreciated uh, what the Swedes, for instance, and the Scandinavians have brought to the table, and um, if, what, what's your understanding of what is the canon of the Phantom? What's, what's, what's true and what's, what isn't? saying this is a cop-out, but I think the canon is 
what you want it to be. Very good answer. So, so many readers of The Phantom have come into the comic strip at different stages in the comic strip's history. Like, when I first started reading The Phantom, it was the late 1970s. But the first stories I read dated from the mid to late 1930s. Yet, for, say, a Swedish reader, you know, their exposure, and I think a lot of our... Um, ideas of what constitutes the canon of phantom stories depends on that first level of exposure to the phantom because I think so much of it is tied to your own emotional connection or emotional response to those stories. So I think, you know, for say, for instance, um, you know, one, one reader from Sweden in the survey said, oh, you know, my father who worked as a cleaner in an office building found an old phantom Herman comic in in the waste paper bin at someone's desk and he brought it home it was a Norman Walker um, story and, and involved a ghost ship and they said I really loved it you know it was a shipwreck it was a ghost pirate ship or something like that and so for that person you know the stories that are written by that author or if there are stories that are illustrated by um oh what's the um yeah, was it Jaime Valve I think. Oh, Jay, yeah, um, Jay, yeah, yeah. Jamie Velvet. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, I, I think for me, um, those early stories uh, he did in the in the 70s, particularly the old sort of Phantom Chronicle um, stories there, I think they, you know, could be legitimately included as part of the canon because they add something new. Um, they reconfigure. The Phantom and reorient, you know, the Phantom as an historical figure um, based on, you know, the, the concept of the Phantom Chronicles. And, and and for me, his artwork is just, you know, gorgeous. I think he's just um, a really beautiful black and white illustrator. Um, I, I just enjoy his stories. I, you know, I could read them for, for hours. Um, so I think the canon is what you want it to be. And I think how you determine what the canon will be of phantom stories will be determined by your exposure to those stories and at what age in your your life you first read the phantom. So I don't want to sort of say, you know, set it down in stone tablets and saying, right, it's these stories and nothing else, everything else is irrelevant. Um, Because my own idea of what constitutes a canon is going to be very different from your respective ideas of what constitutes a canon. And and my, my idea of the canon is probably so eclectic and weird and eccentric that, you know, they want to go, what are you smoking, Kevin? This makes no sense at all. But, you know, it might draw on a Jim Burrow story from, you know, the, the, the um, Charlton period. It might be, you know, a Wilson McCoy Sunday strip. It could be a daily story from the Ray Moore era. Mm. Well, you seem to be very much in the Jermaine Parker um, view of what is canon there. <laughs> but to be to be honest, and I'm sure you would agree, Dan, that's that's a very good diplomatic answer, which I don't think we've looked at before with our continual topics on the podcast and off the podcast. Yeah. So, um, probably. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I was very impressed with that answer, Kevin. And not just because you agreed with me. Um. <laughs> That's just a happy bonus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, so, 
Um, so uh, another another question. So where does um? So you said at the start you're also writing stuff for Free Giant Size. So is that going to be a regular ongoing um uh piece that we will see from now on? I believe it will be. Um, I've been in discussion with Glenn Ford about that. Um, so having done the Phantom Ranger, I'm actually going to be doing a similar piece, uh, probably a slightly smaller piece on the Shadow um, for an upcoming issue of Giant Size Phantom, um, which I'm looking forward to do as well, because I think that's such an interesting character for a whole host of reasons. Mm. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm hoping that you know I'll, I'll be able to do that. Um, and I, I do enjoy doing it. it. It's great to actually have a byline in, in the through edition of the Phantom. That's, you know, like a a dream come true. Yeah, and it's and it's fair to say that the history that you know of comics is not just limited to the Phantom. Uh, you've I've I've been following a couple of discussions on Facebook with a couple of prominent um, Australian uh, comic book people, and these, I think these were talking about covers. Um, was it the Phantom Ranger? I think it was, and these were discussing how many. How many covers have been on uh, have been published, and I think you you helped clear up some confusion and stuff. So it's fair to say that your knowledge on Australian comic history is not just limited to the Phantom. Is that correct? Yeah, that's that's true. I've always had um, a long-standing interest in the history of Australian comics, and I'll, if I can just diverge, I'll, I'll give you some background on that. Um, as a kid growing up, I was, you know, the, the comic book, classic comic book nerd, obsessive reader and collector, um, and most of the comics I would think would be Australian reprints of overseas comics and that sort of thing. Um, so, you know, apart from The Phantom, it would be Batman, The Flash, uh, Green Lantern, um, and also imported American comics, which you could still buy at your local milk bar. You know, I could go and get Captain America at my local milk bar, you know, when my dad would send me down to the corner shop to get him a packet of smokes. So, you know, that's when you could actually go into a milk bar and buy a packet of smokes for your old man without being asked for ID. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is how old I am, kids. Um, but, <laughs> um, so, I remember it. Um, 1979, there was actually the first ever comic book convention held in Melbourne and indeed in Australia. And it was being, I think, run partly by people connected with RMIT University. Um, and I think, I can't remember where the venue was. It might have been the exhibition buildings. Um, I'm trying to remember now, but I badgered my dad into taking me and, you know, he, he you know, took me along being an indulgent dad that he was. And going into the convention, you know, they had display rooms of all these old comics and you could see, like, original um, Marvel and DC comics from, you know, the 40s and 50s and you just walk around going, oh, wow, that's great, you know. Oh, look at that 1960s Avengers comic with the first appearance of the Vision. Ooh, that's exciting. And then there's one segment of that room that was given over to Australian comics and it's just like the scales fell off my eyes and you go, holy crap. We had an Australian comics? You know, why wasn't I told about this? And <laughs> I think it was, you know, I, I remember, you know, distinctly one of the comics I saw was called Charchman, Phantom of the East. And it, the subheading of the story caption was, you know, 
um, terrorists in Malaya. And I remember, you know, at the time I picked up this book about Australian military history. It was talking about, you know, Australian forces fighting in what was then called Malaya, now Malaysia, against the communist insurgency there. And I just thought, oh, wow, there were comics that were being published then that were talking about current events at that time. Like, my little head was just ready to explode with all this new knowledge. And it was, it was fortuitous going along to that convention at that time, because that was also the year that the late John Ryan had his book, Panel by Panel, A History of Australian Comics, published. And I think for many fans and collectors of my generation and people who've come to comics subsequently, you know, that book is, you know, kind of like our, our Bible in terms of, like, laying out the map of the history of Australian comic strips and comic books. And my parents, you know, bought me that for Christmas. Um, and I'm eternally grateful that they did because, um, you know, I still have that copy. It's falling apart. You know, the pages are coming loose from the spine, you know, thumbprints everywhere. Um, but for me, that was such a, a revelatory book because you just had this idea of like, wow, we actually did this. You know, we actually made our own comics. We had like really popular superheroes and jungle heroes and all that sort of stuff. So for me, I think that was the thing that sort of ignited my interest in Australian comics. And, and it's probably culminated really probably when about, what, eight, nine years ago when I actually um, got the chance to curate an exhibition on the history of Australian comics at the State Library of Victoria. Um, um, that went for about you know, four or five months. And I was really proud of that because it was a chance to sort of put in a, a big public forum, you know, a, a major public institution and say, look, you know, this is what we did. This is what we still do. Um, you know, we still make comics in this country. There's a whole new generation of people making comics. You know, the graphic novel was just sort of taking off in Australia. So it's been that kind of trajectory from, you know, going to that first comic book convention as a kid in 1979, fast forward to 2007, 2008, when the exhibition was That's been the kind of, you know, the sort of trajectory of my interest. In Australian mm. comics, but I have to say, as a personal preference, I'm probably more drawn to the comic books of, say, my dad's childhood of the 1940s and 50s, because I find them such interesting historical documents in their own right, and also because they deal in genres that I'm personally interested in, like westerns, uh, like detective stories, like, you know, the sort of mystery men figures like The Shadow or The Grey Domino or even The Phantom. I'd call The Phantom a kind of mystery man sort of figure. So mm. my own personal taste is for comics of that era because I think they, they just deal in genres that really aren't on the radar anymore, but which I find, you know, uh, absolutely fascinating. Hmm. Look, you've been really generous with your time, Kevin, and we certainly appreciate it. Um, in a couple, last question, if I may. Um, where do you see then um, Fru's place in the Australian comic book industry and history um, with the with the the publications that they came up with, the, the characters that you're now writing about in Giant Size? How do they fit? into the, the larger landscape of Australian comic books, do you think? I think you have to regard Fru as a significant participant in Australian comic books, um, both historically and certainly con currently now, um, more so. 
Um, I think Foo was a company, typical of many companies at that time, which kind of exploited the sort of post-war explosion of interest in comic books. Um, you know, the fact that they seized on the Phantom was, you know, probably one of the luckiest business decisions yeah. they made. Yes. Uh, um, and the fact that they, they used the Phantom as a kind of springboard to develop their own publications as well, like, you know, things like The Shadow and The Phantom Ranger and so Falcon, you know, however derivative they might have been, it, it certainly showed, you know, a commitment to comics, you know, comics as a popular mass medium, as a profitable mass medium. Um, they weren't possibly the best publisher of comics. They didn't always publish the best comics of their period, but I don't think you can discount their historical significance. I think the fact that characters like the Phantom Ranger, you know, was such a huge success, you know, it was it spawned a line of merchandise, it had its own radio show, uh, it was ex printed under licence in the UK and in Brazil, um, you know, so I think, you know, you have to objectively consider them to be a major participant in the comic book industry at its peak. And now, I think very much so as really the, the last man standing, mm. I guess. Yeah. That, uh, the sole surviving link that we have to the formative years of Australia's comic book industry, I think the process certainly begun under Jim, Jim Shepard's stewardship and now being continued and extended further by Glenn Ford and Renee White and Dudley Hogarth. Um, you know, I think they're, they're very conscious of their history and their legacy, and I think it's to their credit that they've acted on that and that they're, you know, really doing a great service for fans and for readers by recirculating and restoring not just these classic phantom stories, but now, you know, under the current ownership of Fru, they're actually looking at the company's history in comics outside of the phantom. I think that's really good. I think anything that puts this material in front of a wider audience, you know, it just gets a big tick from me. I'm really mm. thrilled that they're doing giant science fan. Cool. Cool. So Dan's got one more question he needs to ask you. Um, this is your question, Dan, so you sure. can ask it. Oh, me. Uh, the, I'm, I'm a little bit worried for you, Kevin. Um, you, you've called your book The Phantom Unmasked, America's First Superhero. Um, we all know the old jungle saying that he who looks upon the face of the unmasked phantom dies a horrible death. You're not worried about that at all? Look, um, so far my health is okay. I will admit I've got a head cold I can't quite shake. I don't know if this is the curse that's coming to haunt me. Um, yeah, look, I'm just hoping that, you know, if I, if I draw the, the good mark on the inside of my left wrist with a, with a pen... <laughs> thank you for joining us it was um a blast talking about the phantom and the history from around the world and in australia and stuff um before we do go must give you the opportunity to tell us how people can buy the book and then also give you the opportunity to um to say any thank yous and, and stuff like that people for people who have helped you in this in the past um, ex, um past number of years Amazon.com. It is available. 
Uh, even though the official publication date is the 15th of November, <laughs> um, I've already had friends here who've bought copies online, so you can do that. Um, I actually don't know uh, if there's a, a wholesale distributor for the book in Australia. Um, uh, I'm assuming you know outlets like QBD, which have posted the preview online, they might be getting copies from a local distributor. Oh, I'm sorry, I wish I had that information for you. I, I feel remiss not being able to tell you that. Um, <laughs> I might post something, you know, maybe on Twitter Chamber or something. Um, but for, for the first instance, yes, certainly um, Amazon.com would be the place to go there. Um, how many people to thank? Gosh, look, there's been so many people I have thanked in print. In the thesis, I think my acknowledgements paid section ran for about four pages. <laughs> um, and, and I think, you know, it's similarly with the book, it runs to about two or three pages. Um, obviously, I'd like to thank my wife, Sophia, um, for putting up with me, generally, <laughs> and in particular for the duration of my thesis and working on the book. Um, I'd want to thank Caroline Cox, uh, my initial editor at University of Iowa Press, for you know helping me you know hammer this book into into what I think is is is, is to really good shape, turning a thesis into a hopefully an accessible book. Um, I should probably also thank uh, Andreas Eriksson, particularly from Sweden. Yep. Um, he did a lot of groundwork for me, putting me in touch with a lot of the original Team Phantom and creators whom I interviewed. Um, in Sweden um, for my thesis as well. Uh, so you should definitely get a, a tip of the hat there. Um, I'd also want to thank the nearly 600 uh, Phantom fans from Australia, India, Sweden, and other countries as well um, who participated in the survey. I think you know my thesis and the subsequent book are as good as they are in, in a great deal due to their input um, and the fact that they were so willing to volunteer their time and memories and information uh, with me um, you know, I can't thank them enough I can't thank enough all the people um, fan clubs websites such as Chronicle Chamber who did so much to promote the thesis, uh, to promote the online survey when it came out um, that was really great. Uh, it was uh, having my own PR army, you know, going out there and spreading the word. So thanks to all the comic shops and websites who did that. Um, gosh, uh, look, I, I could go on for hours, but I won't. Um, you, if you if you want to find out who else I thanked, um, let me just close by saying three words. <laughs> of course, and, and we. Uh, in Australia, I don't think it is going to be available until the 15th um, by the look of things, and, and we're both hanging out for it. So we're very, very keen to, to buy it and read it. And, um, you know, we, we've just uh, scratched the surface tonight, I think. Mm. It's been quite a, quite a long conversation, but I still feel like there's just so much to explore, and, and I really can't wait to, to read the, the book and, um, yeah, educate myself just that just that bit more. Mm, definitely. Fantastic. Thank you both for having me uh, on the podcast. I know this has been a long time coming, but it's been an absolute pleasure talking mm -hmm. to you both. Um, and and I, hope, I hope your listeners in, enjoy the discussion. And, um, yeah, I hope you enjoy the book too. I'm sure we will. Thank you for joining us. Um, yeah, it, was, it was a real pleasure having you.
Uh, you know, and from thanks, me too. Thanks, thanks very much, Kevin. Welcome. Thank you, Jermaine. Thank you, Dan. It's been an absolute thrill. You enjoy that? That was a lot longer than I expected. It, it was, <laughs> but um, it was it was a great it was a great interview, a great time just to just to like learn about fandom history from around the world. Mm. Like so, for yourself, who who's and you've said before on the podcast that your understanding of the Phantom in Sweden and stuff like that. How did you find that? Um, oh, it was interesting, and, and that's why I wanted to ask the question about what mm. he thought um, was canon, um, because, and I'm, I'm not having a go at Kevin here, and I'm not having a go at you, but I do think that the, um, the canon is what you make of it, or, or what you want it to be. That is a bit of a cop-out for mine, um, <laughs> because it's, <laughs> it is very hard then to go, well, uh, it, it's, it's not definitive, and... Um, I know that my system of uh, newspaper strips is not perfect and there's all sorts of problems with it, but at least, um, as I've said before, there's a definitive line for me. Look, I, I thought it was really interesting the way that he talked about um, Sweden, India and Australia as being those countries that have had major contributions to, and, and that is not, um, you, you can't argue against that. Yeah, but it's not definite either. No, that's right. That's right. And and this is the joy of it, I suppose. There's so much um, mm. discussion you can have about what's right and what's wrong and, and where do things fit. So um, really interesting to get a perspective of someone who's actually sat down and done this in a really quite serious way. We muck around and, and um, you know throw a few articles on a website and, and ring up and record a, a Skype conversation so we can release it as a podcast. Um, Kevin's done it. To, to get himself academic um, qualifications and, and now releasing a book. Like, this is some serious re research that he's done. So um, you, you've got to take his point of view very, very seriously. Mm. And um, it, it's certainly something for – giving me some pause for thought. There's no doubt about that. No, I, I totally agree. I, um, I, I just – to be honest, I would have loved to be in – in that room with him in, in uh, Egmont and just going through all that stuff. Um, I could see your eyes light up and we, we don't have uh, visual on the Skype. We just record audio, but I, across the Nullarbor, I could see your eyes just light up at the idea of being in those scenic um, storerooms. <laughs> but I think, I think, I think any Phantom fan who, with a little bit of history, like I reckon you would have, you would have cherished that as well. Um, oh, of course, of it's course. Just, it was just yep. an opportunity of a lifetime to do that. Mm. So, yep, yeah. absolutely. So it was it was great listening to it, and it was good to kind of get the the overarching, but not you know the Phantom history, the Australian history, and it was um, yeah really enjoy really enjoyable talk. Um, so I hope everyone else, all of you listeners, uh, enjoyed that as mm. well. Again, thank you, Kevin, for. Um, uh, giving up your Saturday morning to record that with us. Um, so as as per normal, you can find us on chroniclechamber.com. Um, don't forget we have um, uh, we've got our Reddit message board as well, which is reddit.com/r/phantomfans. So this would be a great discussion to talk about, um, and possibly even talk about the um, his uh, Kevin's take on the canon as well. I would love to hear some more people's opinions on that. 
Um, you can also find us on social media. So you've got um, Facebook, you've got uh, Twitter, you've got uh, what else do we do? YouTube as well. Um, and then probably also we need to give a special mention to Patreon. Um, we have to say thank you to a couple of people who have um, donated recently, which has allowed us to, to, to go up in a new level. Um, so it means we can have more phantom content and all our wives groaned at that. But we're excited about that. So that's an exciting development. And of course, um, you can find us on iTunes as well as your Android um, uh, podcast subscribers. So uh, thank you again to our listeners for listening to us, for Kevin for joining us, um, for everyone who has participated with um, Patreon and stuff like that. A uh, big shout out to you guys as well. Um, Dan, thank you for joining us. Um, hope you enjoyed yourself. And until next time. Happy phantoming. Happy phantoming. Thank you again for um, joining us. Sorry about the technical difficulties halfway through and the exorcism at the beginning. Staying up so late there, I should let you guys go and get some shut eye now. Oh, we're actually <laughs> going to record another podcast. <laughs> <laughs> you just a pair of machines. <laughs> uh, it, it's actually a bit crafty because we're starting to cop a little bit of flack from our families about uh, you're always down there recording another podcast. So we figure if we record two in a night, um, <laughs> we should be able to buy ourselves a weekend. Back with the families. Exactly. Yeah. No, you, you need to you need to build up your stocks with the family, guys. So that's a good <laughs> that's it strategy. Well done. <laughs> good. Remember, my mother-in-law says, "Happy wife, happy life." Yes. That's it. Yes. So true. <laughs> As only mother-in-laws can say. <laughs> so no, true. Good on you. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed that. It was that was absolutely fascinating. Thank mm. you so much. Very, very it's been useful. my pleasure. No, thank you. I'm, I'm glad it was worth the wait. Absolutely. <laughs> Definitely. 500 years ago, he washed ashore the sole survivor of a shipwreck. And upon the skull of the man who killed his dad, he said, I'm mad, I must eradicate piracy, injustice and cruelty. And all my sons will follow me, so evildoers will believe that this Man cannot die. The Phantom. The ghost who walks. The Phantom. Enemies beware. The Phantom's always there. But you won't find the Phantom. He finds you.